Coming up on today's show, Advanced Education Minister Dimitrios Nikolaitis will join us. We'll speak with a gentleman from our province who just recently left Ukraine. He was teaching there until the government said, you know what, it's time for you to go. We'll find out why. And we'll also talk about a new campaign from Canadian Blood Services called Be a Hero. Uh, sexual assault has always been something of a concern in all areas of Canadian society. Certainly includes post-secondary education. We know that that's an issue. Um, in fact, one in ten women um, reported experiencing sexual assault on a post-secondary campus in 2019. One in ten. Uh, that's a lot. Uh, the provincial government this week announced new funding and strategies to try and address this problem. And here to walk us through it all, we have the Minister for Advanced Education, Dimitrios Nikolaitis. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Of course, thank you for having me. Um, so I guess uh, just to break down, there's there's a couple of different aspects to this. One of them being, um, you know, the funding, $2.5 million, is really focused on an effort to try and gather some data around this issue in our province, correct? Yes, that, that's one of the, the purposes of the funding that, we've, uh, that we're going to be providing to our post-secondary institutions because, you know, you're right. You mentioned one in 10 women um, experience uh, sexual assault according to the data that's available and, and studies that are available at a national level, but we don't have that information at a, at a provincial level where we can really get a, a much better understanding of, uh, of what's happening within post-secondary campuses. So uh, a portion of, of the funds that we've allocated that we announced the other day will go to the development of a, of a specific Alberta province-wide survey to help us get a better understanding of what's happening within our own province. Yeah, and how important is that? Like that in-depth survey, just sort of getting a, a, an understanding of the situation is so key to handling it, correct? Well, 100%. We, we, need, to, we need to have a clear understanding of, of where we're at, you know, and uh, as I think we can all understand, in, in a lot of conversations with, with student leaders, one of the things that uh, they've reinforced with me is, that, that there are often challenges of reporting that uh, an individual yeah. who may experience um, sexual assault or sexual harassment may not know uh, completely the, the process by which to report it, may, may not be aware of the services that are available on their campus, or may, may simply not want to report it. Uh, so we're, we're hopeful that we, through the survey, we can uh, get a better understanding of, of, of what's happening within the province. Um, and the other aspect here is, uh, and this is a little more immediate and more action-based, is you want um, post-secondary institutions in Alberta to come up with some policies, some stri- some framework in how to deal with this immediately, right? I mean, there's some, some concrete deadlines here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, many of our post-secondary institutions have policies in place uh, regarding sexual violence, but but in my conversation with students over the past several years, they had pointed out that there are some uh, some areas where we can do a better job of improving those policies. Uh, for a, a couple of quick examples, one of the things that they mentioned is there there isn't standardization, and so the, the policies vary quite a bit from one institution to the next. Uh, and, and so within that, you may have different, different um, timelines about reporting incidents of sexual violence. You may have a different complaint process entirely. So we've, we've sat down with student leaders and other experts in this area to get a better understanding of what should some of those key benchmarks look like. And so we are asking post-secondary institutions to um, have a look at their policies, to, to engage in a little bit more research and analysis and ensure that 
there are clear timelines. There is protection from face-to-face encounters during the complaint process. Uh, the, there is sensitivity training required for those who are involved in the in the complaint process. So trying to establish some province-wide benchmarks that we can all aspire to. So to be fair to characterize this as sort of the starting point and the beginning of what will be a much larger, not necessarily much larger, but a larger process as it goes along? I would I would certainly think so. Yeah. I think this is indeed a, a very important first step. You know, as you mentioned, uh, one in 10 uh, uh, women experience uh, sexual assault in a post-secondary setting, and much higher, you know, 70% actually of students at Canadian post-secondary schools witness or experience unwanted sexual behaviors. So this is indeed a first step. Uh, Making sure that we have robust policies in our campuses, I think is an important first step. The survey will help us get a much better understanding of of where we're at within our province. And thirdly, one of the other things that we we, uh, are working with our post-secondary institutions to achieve as part of the funding that we announced is to bolster uh, training programs uh, and awareness campaigns. So indeed, uh, a first step, uh, and and I hope that there's there's more action, which I'm certain there there will be that we can take in the future. Hey, well, I've got you. We've got. Uh, we're expecting that most of the restrictions are going to come off in the province of Alberta as of March first. And you sent out a letter last week to all of Alberta's post secondary institutions saying you expect to have kids back on campus learning in person. Uh, no reason to not have them back on campus. What have you heard in response, and how important do you think it is to get Alberta's post secondary students back in the classroom uh, as of March 1st? Well, I, I think it's very important that uh, we uh, we create an environment in which uh, students can get back to in-person learning uh, as much as possible. You know, our post-secondary students have, have lost out on, on a lot of in-person learning and, and the social activity uh, that, of course, comes along with, with campus life. That, that is a very positive experience, participation in clubs and other activities. Um, you know, I know the, um, uh, uh, our neighbors in British Columbia, their chief medical officer of health, um, also sent, sent a letter to post-secondary institutions uh, encouraging them to, to move uh, back to in-person delivery and, uh, and indicating that there, there wasn't a strong public health imperative to have post-secondary institutions online. And so I think as we're seeing you know, across the country and, and actually around the world, jurisdictions uh, all around the world are relaxing restrictions. And, and I think we need to ensure that we're taking the same approach with, within our post-secondary institutions. Uh, you know, there, there'll be some variance, of course, and some programs may continue online or there may continue to be online delivery in some ways. I think that's, that's um, uh, perhaps one of the positive experiences is, is of COVID is that we've learned how to deliver post-secondary education in an online manner. So I think there's some important lessons we can learn from that and actually apply it. But by and large, I think it's uh, important for our institutions to to align their policies with, with where the province is going. Is that a recommendation or are there steps that you might take if there are institutions that say, no, we're not ready and don't want to do it? Is it a recommendation or could it be enforced in some way? Well, I, again, I, I think it's uh, it's helpful for all of our institutions to to align their policies with um, with the government. If you know, if any one of our institutions has any particular challenges or concerns, uh, my door is always open, and mm-hmm. I'm always available to to help them. And if there's uh, uh, 
um, uh, any additional um, steps that I can take to support them and assist them. And I understand it, of course, will be a transition to, to try and get back to some degree of normalcy. So uh, that, of course, may take some time. But it's important we get there at the end of the day, which I think we will. And, and let's not forget as well that we, by and large, we, we were back to in-person delivery in September uh, this, this fall. So um, it's, um, it, it's, not, it's not as though we're, we're coming off yeah. a very extended period of online delivery. The, you know, our institutions um, shifted to online around that December time when, when Omicron was, was really peaking, which I think was very prudent. Of course, there was a lot we didn't know about Omicron at that stage and what was going to happen. Of course, we have much more information now, and I think we can uh, we can work together to, to get our students back into the classroom. Last one, and I'll let you go, and I appreciate your time. Uh, we're chatting with Dimitrios Nicolaitis, the uh, Minister of Advanced Education in Alberta. We've seen some labor unrest. You know about Concordia, Mount Royal came close, University of Lethbridge having a walkout or a strike right now. Um, what's, the take, what's your take on that? Where do you anticipate that going, and is that something that's going to carry on for a while? Yeah, well, well, I'm hopeful, uh, very hopeful. Of course, you know, co- collective bargaining um, occurs primarily between the Board of Governors yes. of the post-secondary institution and their faculty association. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very, I'm very uh, hopeful that, um, that, that parties involved can, can reach um, settlements and, and, and avoid strike action. You know, our, our students have been through quite a bit. Over the course of the past two years with the pandemic and, and shifting to online and then trying to get back into in-person and going online again, and there's been massive disruptions uh, for our students in terms of their academic progression, being able to complete their studies and their, their social lives um, as well. There, there's massive mental health implications. And so, uh, you know, I really hope that we can get to an environment where, where we avoid further disruption. I'm, I'm very, I was very happy to see uh, Concordia uh, settle with yep. their faculty association. Of course, there was a strike there for a period of time, but they were able to settle. Um, it, it, uh, I think Mount Royal. Yeah, they averted a strike action. Table. They managed to come to an agreement. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, that's not the case uh, currently with the University of Lethbridge. But uh, you know, I'm uh, I, I'm hopeful that uh, that uh, the, the the parties can find um, um, a settlement that that, uh, that that helps to avoid a, a, an impasse and any kind of prolonged strike because that that has significant negative implications for our students and I think there's been you know, a- adequate uh, uh, twists and turns for them throughout the last two years as a result of the pandemic. So anything we can do to avoid that, I think, would be beneficial. Um, Minister, I, I thank you very much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. All the best. Thank you. So we're keeping an eye on the situation in Eastern Europe and all kinds of developments, and it sounds like there's a full propaganda offensive coming out of Russia. And U.S. President Joe Biden said this morning that uh, the U.S. is convinced that Russia could still invade Ukraine within days. Russia has kicked out the number two diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Back and forth it goes. There were reports that troops were being pulled back from the border with Ukraine. And then there were reports last night that, no, in fact, there were more troops brought in along the border with Ukraine. So attention remains extremely high in that region. And as you know, it's gone along, um, I'm going to say almost a month now as we've seen the buildup. And... uh, Last week was sort of a tipping point where we saw most of the Western countries, UK, US, Canada, saying to their personnel and their citizens in Ukraine, okay, it's time for you to go. 
Well, you still can. Get out of here. One of the people who did, in fact, leave is Nick Hynek, who is an Albertan who is in Ukraine uh, teaching. Nick joins us now. Hi, Nick. Thanks for your time. Appreciate you joining us. Hey, no worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so just give us some idea. Where were you and what were you doing there? So I was in Kiev teaching at a Canadian international school um, for since August. Okay. Um, so I was currently living there um, up until about... Yeah, February 1st is when was the day that I decided to uh, fly back home. So not even two weeks ago, or just over two weeks ago. Um, yeah. What was it like? I mean, when you got there, obviously, this sort of seemed to come up over, like, I say, the last month or two kind of things where it got really serious. So what was it like as this sort of built over the weeks and months until we got to the point where you decided to leave? You know what? It was it was kind of interesting because we we knew about the situation because we have obviously families with and we have like the access to Western media, but then we have access to Eastern media. So we kind of see both sides of it. Right. Yeah. And I would say the beginning of January, uh, they started to come up, talk about with all these Russian troops that sat massing at the border. And there was a lot of talk uh, locally. It's like, well, they just did this. I mean, this is kind of like the same idea that they did in 2014 when they invaded Crimea, right? Yep. Um, and the timeline was the same. Like, the Olymp- they invaded after the Olympics. The Olympics are happening now. So everything is kind of, like, looking exactly the same as 2014. And then that's where things started to get, you know, a little dicier, I would say. So, um, but you know what? The people of Kiev remain cool. That's what I was wondering, because I keep seeing reports from people, I mean, reporters that I follow that are over there right now, that people are going to the opera, people are out for dinner. It looks like they're really sort of taking this in stride, and the concern level they have doesn't seem to match some of the rhetoric we're hearing. No, and I mean, you know what? That's that's the thing. It's like when my last two weeks there, we were going out and, you know, going to restaurants, going to shows and stuff like that. Like, it really wasn't a big deal because if you live in fear the whole time, how is it going to help? Yeah. How is it going to help anyone? Right. And, you know, the Ukrainian people have been at this war for eight years. I mean, they've been invaded already. Yeah. So, you know, they're used to it. They get it. But they can't just live in fear the whole time. And, you know, even their president came on and said, guys, we can't live in fear until something happens. We can't. You can't just, you know, stop what we're doing. We have to enjoy our everyday life, and that's kind of how things are there. Your experience as a Canadian, were you involved? Like, was the embassy in contact with you? Were you hearing from consular staff? Like, how did you sort of keep uh, uh, abreast of what Canadian officials were saying and what they were recommending? How does that work? Mm -hmm. So when I moved there, uh, I signed up with the embassy, and I think anyone who moves across the world or to another country, you need to sign up with your embassy because a situation like this, I wouldn't got the information that was necessary okay. for me to make my decision, right? Um, I would say the first email they sent out was January, uh, like early November, that said, hey, there's a massing of troops at the border. And then halfway, mid-January, they said, okay, listen up, here's the situation. There's Russian aggression happening. You need to consider whether your presence is essential. This was January 24th. Okay. And I kind of looked at that and said, okay, well, am I essential? I mean, like, yeah, I'm a teacher. I mean, like, I'm essential to my school, my staff, <laughs> my kids. Like, of course. But, like, you know, like, what is considered essential? Yeah. So I email back the embassy and say, hey, guys, like, what's, uh, can you be a little more clear on this? Because, you know, we as Canadians, we want to know we're safe, right? Yeah. So, uh, and then a week later, they give another email that says, no, you need to leave while commercial means are available. So February 1st, they sent that email and I was already on my way home by then. I made my decision. So, Yeah. Why? Why did you decide? Okay. I mean, like you say, people were taking it in stride. You were going out, you were having dinners, things like that. What was the thing that made you say, you know what? I'm going to get out of here. You know what? It was, 
a lot of it was like the family and friends back home. You know, they were really concerned yeah. for me. Um, and you know what? She, at the end of the day, you got to take it seriously. Like anything could happen. Yeah. Right. Me moving there, I didn't have a vehicle. I didn't have, you know, really any means to get out. If something was to happen, I would have been a sitting duck. You know, I don't have family close by or anywhere. So I literally would have been stuck there. So I think that was one of the biggest reasons because I didn't have a plan B, C or D. Right. My only option was to go home in case something was to happen. Right. So what's the plan now? I mean, are you, have you just severed all ties? Or are you still in touch with people? Or are you still doing the work? Can you do the work virtually? What's the what's going on now? Well, the beauty of uh, our pandemic here has really opened up the digital teaching universe. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you, Shay, teaching at 2 a.m. every day is not ideal. Um, <laughs> but I, because you train nine hours ahead, right? Yeah. So I'm teaching at 2 a.m. till 8 a.m. So I just finished my lessons for the day. Oh, boy. Uh, so this is usually my sleep time, but uh, I'm happy <laughs> to be here talking to you. But you know what? It's it's doable. It's manageable. Uh, it's kind of like working at the night shift. So. Yeah. For all my Alberta nurses out there, I feel you guys. I understand now. You guys you guys are the real heroes of this pandemic. So, And for now, you just do it this way and, and like everybody else, wait and see what happens here, I guess, hey? Pretty much. I mean, you know, lots the students I see in Ukraine are slowly starting to, like, you know, uh, leave the school, leave the country. Start. So it's kind of a mixed bag of emotions yeah. right now. No one knows what's happening. And, you know, we're going to play it by ear and, you know, hope for the best. And... You know, I hope nothing happens. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, like you say, nobody knows. Nobody seems to know. It's really confusing. So, Nick, thank you so yeah. much. Great insight. I really appreciate it. Thanks for talking to us. Oh, no worries, Shay. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That is Nick Heineck, an Albertan who is teaching in Ukraine, as you heard, up until uh, not just about two weeks ago, when finally he decided, okay, enough is enough. It's time for me to go. We're going to talk about something now that uh, some of you uh, who've uh, you've been you know watching me for a while on TV or listening to me or whatever the case may be, you may know that I have a bit of a connection to this next issue that we're going to address. We're talking about stem cell transplants and the, and the need for donors. And just full disclosure, back in I believe it was 2016, uh, something like that, my wife had a stem cell transplant. She had to. I mean, there was she was at a point where she had this really weird condition that we had spent years trying to figure out. Nobody could. We ended up having to go to the Mayo Clinic where they finally sorted out what the situation is. Uh, and um, the medication that she was on, prednisone, you know it, you love it, I'm sure a lot of you, um, it worked, but you can't be on the doses that she was on for as long as she was without it killing you eventually. So that's the situation we were in, and the doc said, we can't keep doing it, um, just can't. Uh, your only hope here is a stem cell transplant. Now, she was extremely lucky in that her sister was a perfect match and uh, was more than happy and willing to be part of the program. And uh, we'll tell you, it's, it's, it's a bit of a lift, but not much of a lift. Really, it's not. You, you'll, you'll be surprised to learn. So anyway, uh, her, her sister donated the stem cells. Um, Trish got the stem cells. Um, and then the recovery started. And I'm not going to lie. The recovery for a lot of people is hell absolute hell. Uh, setbacks, start overs. I mean, it, it's not a smooth and easy process, but lo and behold, probably more than a year later, maybe two years later, it's, it's, it's worked, right? Um, and now, now life starts over again. It's, it's really interesting after a stem cell transplant. Essentially what they do, um, it was two days of full body radiation, massive doses of chemotherapy. They destroy your immune system, your bone marrow. They just destroy it. They kill it. They wipe it out so it no longer functions. Uh, and then they 
implant a new immune system, essentially. And uh, it's far from perfect, but it, it saves a lot of lives. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that can't get the donors. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The campaign that's being launched by Canadian Blood Services uh, to try and increase awareness and donations. It's called Be a Hero. It's the stem cell campaign. And here to tell us about it, we have Monique Mann uh, joining us. Monique, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. You know, when we, we, we talk about this, I mean, you, you know it better than anybody. You're a two-time stem cell transplant recipient, right? Tell us your story. That's correct, yeah. So I was diagnosed in 2013 with acute myeloid leukemia, um, and it was a complete shocker. I, I, like, literally out of my radar, I had no idea what was what was coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I received my first transplant in June of 2014, Okay. However, um, I relapsed 14 months later. So just like you mentioned, I had to go through the extensive chemo and radiation all over again. Oh, and boy. luckily, my second transplant was a success, and I'm here six years later now. Um, and I can completely agree with you about the hardships of recovery and how long it really takes for somebody to kind of get back on their own feet um, and be the person that they were once prior to receiving a stem cell transplant or their diagnosis for that reason. Um, so I'm incredibly happy for your wife. Yeah, I mean, we could probably get into the weeds here and talk about, you know, GVHD and all the rest of those things. I don't know if you had mm-hmm. to deal with all of that stuff. I don't know if we need to talk about that here. But, but yeah, I, you're right. That road to recovery is is pure hell in a lot of ways, but so, so worth it. I mean, uh, it, it, we're talking about a treatment here, Monique, that literally uh, for people who have no other... I mean, this is it. You're, it's the end of the road for you. And this basically... When, when it works, starts life over again. I mean, it, it's, it's that profound, right? Yep, exactly. Um, there's really no other choice but to receive a stem cell transplant. And I'm extremely happy for your wife in the sense that she found her match in her own family. Right, her yeah. sister. Um, I have three siblings, and they all got tested to see if they were a match for me, and they weren't. So I had to rely on a complete stranger in this world. And you got your stem cells from Germany, and that's where most people get their stem cells, right? Because if you're in the army in Germany, you have to donate, right? Exactly. It's that simple. I mean, basically, the global supply of stem cells in large part is met by Germany because German soldiers become part of this program when they join. I mean, and it they're they're saving lives all over the world because of it. So we want to change that and get people locally. Um, in terms of the number of donors we have in our country, like there's a lot of work we need to do around this, right? Oh, for sure, yes. Um, we our numbers can 100% grow. Um, what we need are individuals who are committed to donating. So, um, stem cell transplants can cure over 80 different diseases and disorders, okay. um, including such things as leukemia, lymphoma, aplastic anemia. Um, and as of January 2022, we have over a thousand Canadians who are actively looking for a stem cell donor match. So, what we are doing in February is anybody who starts the process to join the stem cell registry will receive a free Be a Hero tube um, with their buccal, which is a cheek swab kit, yep, yep. in the mail. Um, so, we've partnered with Hockey Gives Blood. Um, I love and that. across 
Yeah, and across Canada, hockey teams have been leading the Be a Hero campaign, helping to highlight why joining the registry is important and how others can get involved. Um, please feel free to follow along with the conversation using the hashtag Be a Hero. Um, and you can see all the work and all the individuals that are joining the registry. Um, so really, it's quite simple. If you're between the ages of 17 and 35 in general good health, you can visit blood.ca slash be a hero. You complete your registration form. You order your buccal swab kit and everything is free of charge. Um, and it comes directly to your home address or whatever address you put in and you complete it. It's literally a 10 to 15 minute process. Awesome. And, and you know, I think a lot of people don't aren't aware of really how easy it is to be a stem cell donor, not only just, you know, getting on the registry like you just talked about, but actually donating your stem cells. In in most cases, it's not that big of a lift. It's not a whole lot more than giving blood, is it? No, not at all. Um, so stem cell transplants um, are used 90% of the time today. I know a lot of people get scared when they hear about a bone marrow transplant. Sure, yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it sounds terrifying. Um but that is less than 10% of the time now. And donating stem cells would be the same way as donating blood in the sense that we use an apheresis system, right? Yeah. So you get one needle in one arm, um, it's extracting the blood, and then another needle in the other arm, and everything is coming back to you. You're putting it all back in. Stem cells. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly. it's an in and out system. <laughs> It's quite simple if you think about it. Um, but I mean, for any individuals that are scared of needles or have a phobia, at the end of the day, it's such a, it's such a selfless act that you're doing. You're, you could be a hero. You could save somebody's life. Um, here in this conversation, there's two of us that have been saved, right? Your wife and I. Yeah. Um, by selfless deeds. And I mean, it's really that simple. Um, and you're doing a lot of work around, I mean, there's, we need to get more diverse in our stem cell uh, donor registry too, right? I mean, that's another aspect of it. we got to look at, you've worked a lot with South Asian communities. Yes, I did. So when I was diagnosed originally in 2013, um, we started campaigning and growing the registry. At that time, unfortunately, the registry was only at, a think about like 2%, just over 2%. Um, and over the years, I'm happy to share today that we have over 7% South Asians on the registry because nice every work. single individual that joins does make a difference. It honestly does make a difference. And to meet the needs of all patients, we actively seek new registrants of Indigenous, Asian, South Asian, Hispanic, mixed race, and diverse Black communities. And right now, only 33% of potential donors on Canadian Blood Services Stem Cell Registry come from those backgrounds. Yeah, so I mean, the need is huge, and uh, and like we said, it, it's really easy. It's not that hard. Now you have to be within that window of seventeen to thirty five. Um, but Monique, thank you for your time, spreading the message, and hopefully we we can increase the numbers a bit here. Of course, thank you. Thanks very much. That is Monique Mann, a stem cell transplant recipient, two times over. Initially, you heard. The first time it didn't work. So in order to donate your stem cells, you need to be between the ages of 17 and 35, okay, and in good health. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.